The rest of us can turn to Genesis chapter 9. At CBC here, we tend to work through books of the Bible in our sermons, not necessarily by topic, but by scripture and working through it. It's just a way of ensuring that we hear from the whole counsel of God, even the hard and the ugly parts. And so that has resulted in a little bit of a Mother's Day tradition in that we choose some really weird texts for Mother's Day. Um, some of the harshest judgment passages of Scripture have fallen on Mother's Day, not necessarily by human design, but just the way it works as we work through these Bibles. So today's no different. We've got a weird passage for Mother's Day, but I hope you go along with me as we're going to be in Genesis 9, starting at verse 18 in Genesis 9, then we're going to actually work through all of chapter 10 as well. We may not read every word, but we'll work through uh, the big sweeps of it. So I won't read the whole passage at the beginning, but I invite you to turn there with me. In Genesis 9, 18 is where we'll begin today. And as you turn to Genesis 9, I'll pray for a time together. Our Father and God, we do pray you'd be here among us. We're here, we're gathered. There's nowhere, no better place to be than here and now underneath your scriptures. And I pray that you would teach us from a strange passage with foreign things in it, and maybe even at first hard to know how this would apply to us. I pray that you would speak, and that your word would be effective, and that we would be submissive to it and respond in praise and rejoicing because you are a God who speaks to his children and loves his children and has shown us your love, most of all through your son, Jesus Christ. May he be lifted up and praised here and as our children gather for children's church. May we honor the Son. May you send your Spirit. Amen. You may be familiar with the concept of the butterfly effect. The butterfly effect is a small event that through... Consequence and consequence has a catastrophic or large impact. So it comes from the idea of a butterfly flapping its wings in one part of the world and causing a typhoon in another. And, of course, that doesn't actually happen, but that's the, the idea. A small action that has a huge effect. There are countless examples of this throughout history. You know, all big things have small beginnings. So one example would be a scientist once who was on holiday... Went out for vacation, was away from his lab for a month. When he came back, he noticed a petri dish of Staphylococcus bacteria had grown mold on it. And instead of throwing that dish away, he said, well, I'll just study this. This looks interesting. And as he studied it, he noticed that the mold had effectively neutralized the bacteria around it and stopped it from growing. He identified that this mold could actually kill bacteria. And that's how Alexander Fleming, in 1928, accidentally discovered penicillin as an antibacterial and one of the most important discoveries in medical history and led to the introduction of antibiotics because he happened to leave a Petri dish out while he was on vacation. Another example of this could be the printing press causing widespread advancement and use of microscopes and telescopes. How did that happen? Well... With the printing press came much smaller typeface. With much smaller typeface came better uh, need for her, but better ability to see. And enhanced glasses production. And because of that, because manufacturing became more commonplace, 
There were advancements in lens production and cost of lenses, which led to better and better microscopes and telescopes and advances in science. So these things have caused an effect. I heard, I don't know if this is true, that the French lead in cuisine and have been kind of cast as or known as the leaders in fine dining, and it had to do with them overthrowing the nobles and the noble class and the aristocracy and a bunch of private chefs were out of a job, so they opened restaurants and became leaders in fine dining because of the revolution. Well, who knows if that's true? But we never know the consequences of our actions. Even small actions might bring huge results. So it gets to our text today. What we see here in chapter 10 specifically is a recording of the multiplication of the human race and it's spread all over. And there is a huge diversity of tribes and people spread all over the world who have the different relationships with God and are blessed or cursed by God. And that all has to do with Noah deciding to make some grapes. That's how that starts. We have a huge spread of people either blessed or cursed by God because Noah got into winemaking. We'll trace how that happens as we walk through this passage. And what we see here, kind of the main idea of the end of chapter 9 and chapter 10, is that as humans, we're united under Noah, but divided before God. All of humanity, we're united under Noah. All of us have the same parentage, the same roots. We all go back to the same family that left the ark. We all go back to them. But as people spread out, there was increasing division. And we're specifically divided in our relationship with God, whether blessed or cursed. There's both a great unity and diversity among humans and a division in our relationship with the Lord. What I want to do is walk through several divisions that we see in this passage. First, in verses 18 through 23, a division in morality. So where this first split happens after the first family comes out of the ark. There's a division in morality as Noah's sons react very differently to a strange situation. Look at verse 18 of chapter 9. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the whole earth. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders, and they walked in backward and covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father naked. So we start in the strange story by focusing on Noah and his three sons. And specifically, we're shifting to these three sons and talking about them. We've been talking about Noah. Now we're talking to these three sons. And from them came all people. And I want to just camp out there for a second. Just meditate on the idea that all people came from these three sons. And what that means, as I said, is there's a fundamental unity in humanity, there, there is a foundational brotherhood or sisterhood that we have as humans. We all come from the same place. We are united together, bonded together because of that. So um, it might sound kind of hippie-ish to sing We Are the World and sing Kumbaya and all that kind of thing, but, but that's a Christian message, right? 
That is a biblical truth that we share an affinity with one another just by virtue of being human. By virtue of being human, no matter who you are, what you look like, what your background is, whatever creed, whatever, wherever you come from, we are united together in a broader family. That's a message the world loves right now, and I think it twists and contorts in some ways. But at, that, it, at its core is a Christian truth right back here in Scripture. And it means that we ought to have a, a general love, a general appreciation, a general respect for all humanity just by virtue of being human. We have a love for one another and a unity that comes from our united roots. Now, the downside of that is our roots aren't perfect. It says here, Noah is a man of the soil, man of the earth, like Adam, whose name means of the earth. It's a way of saying that Noah was a new Adam and also a farmer. And as a farmer, Noah began to make wine. And the way this is written, it might be saying that he was the first to make wine because he says he proceeded, he began to plant a vineyard. So it might be that winemaking was invented by Noah. He invented viticulture and viniculture. On the one hand, that's a great blessing. Psalm 104.15 says that God gave us wine to make the heart glad, a gift from him for humanity. Wine has been used in religious services and in worship to the Lord within Israel and the church throughout history, in the Passover and the feasts and in communion. Wine is a tool of worship and has been from the beginning. It is also a double-edged sword because Scripture gives us all sorts of warnings and cautions about the dangers of drunkenness. Scripture often shows drunkenness leading to shame. And this is maybe, I think it is, certainly Scripture's first negative example of what wine can do, leaving Noah in a vulnerable, shameful position. Noah's vulnerable in Ham, his youngest son, further exposes his father's shame. This is a question that comes up when finding this passage. What exactly did Ham do to be cursed in the way he is? And we'll get to the cursing. But what exactly did he do? In a few verses it'll say that Noah woke up and saw what Ham had done to him. So that has led some to think that Maybe beyond just seeing him or looking at him, Ham actually did something to Noah when he was in his drunken state. So there are theories out there from commentators. Some have said that maybe Ham even castrated him or sodomized or committed some type of sexual sin with Noah's wife. Often in Scripture it says it uncovers somebody's shame. There's a sexual implication there. We don't know what or if anything Ham did to Noah. What we do know from the text itself, the rest is speculation, it may or may not have happened. What we do know from the text is that he saw his father naked in his tent. And the word there is not just a glance it's, he took in. It wasn't just an accidental passing by. 
maybe with a sexual inclination, at the very least, he didn't look away from his father's shame. He kind of dwelled in it and then enhanced it. He looked upon his father's shame and then went and told his brothers, hey, look at this. It's a disrespecting of the father enhanced by I'm going to spread my father's shame. It's the kind of thing we do when we gossip, when we rejoice in other people's downfall. Say, I'm going to promote this. I'm going to speak it to others. Can you believe what this person did? Now let's spread it around and tell others about it. It's the opposite of grace. The opposite of mercy, not covering over or looking past sin, but actually dwelling in it, dwelling in somebody's failure, and then promoting it to others. And it's what social media is all about sometimes. Look at what they did, and now let's pass it around to everybody else. Is a fundamental disrespecting of the Father, enhancing his shame. It's the opposite of what Shem and Japheth do. They walk in, carefully lay a covering on him, make sure not to look upon their father. They show respect to their father, even in his imperfection, even in his mistake. They don't dwell on his shame or his mistake, but they honor their father, showing respect. One of my favorite pastors or public pastor figures is Alistair Begg. I love him. I love his ability to be simple and clear, even with his Scottish accent. Uh, when I was in seminaries, coming out of seminary, I got the chance to sit and have lunch with Alistair Begg and a few other guys who were training for ministry, and we were hosting a pastor's conference. So we were just shooting questions back and forth to Alistair Begg and hearing from his you know, wisdom. He'd been ministering for a long time in a lot of unique ways. And I remember one question one gentleman asked, and he was a, a younger guy at his church, and he was saying, you know, Mr. Begg, we, our pastor's a little bit older. We feel like his time has passed. We feel like he's gotten a little bit stale, and a couple of us who are younger in the church feel like it's really his time to move on. And we're just trying to figure out how to kind of gracefully move him on, and we feel like it'll be better for the church. And I'm... I'll never forget what Alistair's answer was. I don't remember it verbatim, but basically his answer was, maybe you young pastors should respect your elder. And Alistair Begg has a way to be very direct and kind at the same time. He said, maybe you don't know what he's dealing with or what he's gone through, and maybe you have no idea what you'd be signing up for if you took over his role. Maybe God won't bless. You're trying to sweep him aside. Maybe you should respect your older pastor. And you could hear a pin drop in the room. And we moved on to the next question quickly. Yes, that guy kind of hanged his head a little bit. And now here I am exposing his shame. I won't give you his name. But the, ten, the point was, there's a call to honor the older among us. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Here's your Mother's Day verse. Honor your father. And your mother. Are they perfect? No. Nobody has one. We all have one. 
Nobody else is a perfect father or mother. But we honor them, even in their mistakes, because we all make them. We are called to bless them, to honor them, to show them respect. You don't know what kind of wisdom they may have, experiences they may have, what sacrifices they may have made for you and for us. Shem and Japheth honor their father. Ham does not. Ham disrespected and shamed him. So we have here at the beginning a sharp division in the morality of the sons of Noah. That leads to a division in blessedness in their relationship with the Lord. So you go to verses 24 to 29, there's a division in blessedness, or you could say a division in favor they have with God because of their actions, because of their disposition, their morality. Now there's a division in how they relate to God and the favor he has or does not have for them. Verse 24. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. The lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. He also said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend Japheth's territory. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be the slave of Japheth. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. Noah lived a total of 950 years. Then he died. So here we have Noah's last will and testament. I think, you can correct me if I'm wrong, I think these might be the only words Noah actually speaks in the whole account. I could be wrong on this, but... but he doesn't speak often, and here he speaks finally. And what he's doing is basically leaving a will for his children. Some of you may have worked on your wills, and what are you going to leave behind? Uh, it's good to dictate those things so there aren't fights about who gets what and who's going to execute all that. And, you know, it's a way you can love your children is to leave a will for them to dictate, here's what happens to all my stuff, whether you throw it away or keep it. Here's Noah's will for his kids, and he speaks uh, prophetically about what will happen to them. He can speak prophetically, and it's up to God to enact it. But he speaks about what will be left for his children. And what does Noah will? First, he places a curse on Canaan. Now that's interesting. Ham was the one who did something. Canaan is his youngest son. So why is Canaan the one cursed? And it's one of the classic questions of this text. Why do we skip Ham and go to Canaan? Well, a couple answers might be given there. You'll notice in the first few verses, several times it says, Ham was the father of Canaan. That's not just speaking to biology. It's saying that Canaan walked in the ways of Ham. He was the son of. He was like his dad. So the immorality of Ham is passed on through Canaan specifically and to his children. He's just like his father. So the, the curse will be passed down to him as well. And here Noah's speaking prophetically. He's saying, here's what's going to happen. That Canaan will be cursed. You might also recall Genesis 9.1 God blessed the sons of Noah. Genesis 9-1 says that as they exited the ark, that God blessed Noah and his sons. So it may be that Noah was not willing to curse somebody God had blessed. He was not going to curse Ham explicitly, but he will curse his son and all through him. And of course, there's something else going on there, isn't it? Who wrote Genesis and when? Moses recorded the words of God for the Israelites before they went into the promised land. Who was occupying the promised land? The Canaanites, the sons of Canaan. And what 
Moses is doing here is recording, here's what happened. And here's how these Canaanites who we're at war with, here's how they lost their favor with God is through their father, Ham, and what he had done. So they are a cursed people, while we, the Israelites, the sons of Shem, are blessed. You may have heard of Jewish people referred to as Semitic, or Semitic peoples. This is where that comes from, Shemites. And the Shemites have a special relationship with God, blessed by him, because of Noah's blessing. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. They will be his people. God will be praised in them. They will be especially favored by God. So here Noah gives his blessing and curse. This son blessed, this son cursed because of what they've done. That blessing, that cursing has a powerful effect. I was talking to another pastor in part of a different culture, and in his culture he was noticing that the young people were not respecting their elders and treating them with contempt or just least disrespect. So he said he, he taught this passage and he told his younger people, why do you not seek a blessing from your fathers, from your mothers, from the older people in the church? Why wouldn't you go visit them? He even said, bring them gifts. Spend time with them. And then ask them, would you pray for me? Would you bless me? Do you think that's the kind of thing God would honor? So he taught this to his church. He taught the younger people, go spend time with the older people in your church. Too often we segregate by demographic and by age, and we miss out on something that God has intended for his people. We think, oh, the younger people are all like this. Oh, the older people are all like this. Have you talked to them? No. Have you spent time with one another? Younger people, have you gone to the older people? Bless them. Spend time with them. And then ask, would you pray for me? There is nothing more impactful in your life than the prayer of an older saint. Without getting kind of too weird or too mystical, I think you'll be blessed if you have the elders in the room, the older people in the room, praying for you. There's nobody I want praying for me more than the grandmothers in this room. Seek a blessing. You never know how you may benefit from it. But of course, this passage isn't just about blessing and cursing of a couple individuals. There's a greater thing going on here. It's explaining a spiritual reality that will echo throughout time. There are certain people, certain lineages that are cursed and blessed by God, who God favors and God does not. All people live under God's care and provision and receive his grace, but there are some, and some peoples, from the beginning, God has shown favor to. He has chosen, he has loved. Israel, one of those people, he has chosen to love. The church, God's people, he has chosen to love. He has called out. Who are these people God favors, how are they favored? Let's think about that as we turn to chapter 10. We have a division in morality 
that leads to a division and blessedness amongst Noah's sons. And that's going to lead to a division in lineage that works its way out through all of chapter 10. I don't think I'm going to read it all. I might just kind of highlight sections. So as I go through, I'll just point out names and interesting things. And then hopefully by the end, we'll kind of see the bigger picture of what's going on. This division in lineage has been called the Table of Nations. From what I understand, it's kind of a somewhat unique piece of literature in ancient history. There's no other genealogy quite like this because this isn't really actually a genealogy. There are names, but there are also names of individuals mixed with people and places. So it's not just a family tree. It's an explanation of how people spread out from Noah and where they came from, and where they went, and where they settled. Most of the names, of, almost all of them, are unfamiliar to us, and historians have worked through trying to plot out where each one kind of correlates to now. And a lot of them are known. I won't bore you with all the details, because I don't remember them or know them. So I'm gonna, we're going to skip over a lot of where those names are, but just trying to get kind of move in general pictures. So the first names you'll notice are the sons of Japheth. And this is kind of interesting. Japheth is the least uh, focused on character of the three sons. We don't spend as much time with him or on his sons. But you'll notice in verse 5, from these, the maritime people spread out into their territories by their clans within their nations, each with its own language. So it mentions maritime, and if you do the research and where all these people are, the sons of Japheth kind of spread out to the Mediterranean and to Turkey and to Greece. So when you think of sons of Japheth, think kind of they went on the seas, Greece, Turkey. Now, here's what's interesting about these people. They don't really show up much the rest of the Old Testament, do they? Japheth is kind of pushed to the side. But what is the blessing, going back a few verses, that Japheth got? Shem was blessed, kind of first and foremost. And then, Noah says to Japheth, you'll be blessed too. You will dwell in the tents of Shem, or live in the tents of Shem. These people in Greece and Turkey, somehow they would be blessed whenever they came into the blessing that had been passed on to God's people, the Shemites. When will that happen? Happens in your New Testament. As a blessing that comes through Israel, goes out to the nations, to the Greeks, to the cities of Turkey, where Paul ministers and plants churches. When you live and dwell in the tents of God's favored people, his blessing goes out. There's a gospel preview here. The blessing on the sons of Japheth. Next we go to the sons of Ham. Names stand out here amongst the sons of Ham. Cush, Egypt, Canaan, the Philistines, Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites, Girgashites, Hivites, Sodom, Gomorrah, Babylon, Assyria. Essentially all the enemies of Israel come from the sons of Ham. There's one guy in particular that is named there, a guy named Nimrod, which I don't know if that's true when you were growing up, but I remember Nimrod's being like, oh, yeah, Nimrod, like that's a name for idiot. Right? 
That's not how it's used here. That's not how he was remembered. And it's not how he would have known. I, I think by the time Moses is writing this to the Israelites, he would have been like a legendary figure. Nimrod of the past is a name that invoked fear. Nimrod. Who was he? Well, he was kind of the fir- world's first tyrant. The first Genghis Khan. He was one who was famed as a warrior and a hunter. And says he was, uh, what's the phrasing? A mighty hunter before the Lord which is not saying that he had a relationship with God. He's saying he was so great that kind of God took notice. His prominence would catch God's attention, how dominant he was. And notice the places he founds and he rules over. He places like Babylon, Assyria, and Nineveh. He's responsible for the establishing of those people. So he is a great figure in Israelite history, the legendary Nimrod. Then you notice the list gives special attention to the sons of Canaan. These are the people who occupied the land of Israel before Israel went in. Jebusites, Hittites, Amorites, Girgashites, Hivites. These are all the people that Israel was contending with, the sons of Canaan, before they went to the promised land. Lastly, we get to the sons of Shem. Shem is the middle child. Ham is the youngest. Japheth, the oldest. Shem, the good one, the middle child. So for all you middle children... Take something from that. The list of Shem's sons starts in verse 21. This line where the Hebrew people come from. Uh, You'll notice one name in particular kind of receives prominence here in this group. And that man is Eber at the end of verse 24. Eber, whose two sons were born to Eber. One was named Peleg because in his time the earth was divided. His brother is named Joktan. It's a variation of the name of Eber that we get the word Hebrew and that originates from his name. So this is where the Hebrew people come from, from the line of Eber, and specifically from the line of his son, Peleg. So it says here, one is named Peleg because in his time the earth was divided. Eber had two sons, Peleg and Joktan, and in their time the earth was divided. That might be a reference to what comes next in the Tower of Babel, Oh, there's some challenges with that. It may be that Moses is saying, God is saying, there was a division here. A division happened under Eber between his sons, and we want to follow one son in particular, because that is where God's people come from. He'll list the sons of Joktan there, but he doesn't list the sons of Eber. He's going to pick up the sons of Eber later in the genealogy that comes after the Tower of Babel. So we're going to focus on the sons of Peleg, Eber's son, Later. Why do we focus on them later? Well, because through Eber, son of, or Peleg, son of Eber, will come Terah, and through Terah will come Abraham, God's chosen people. All right, so you say, this is really boring stuff. This genealogy, tracing all the names, they're unfamiliar, what do we do with this? Well, here's the whole point. It's tracing God's blessed people from Noah to Shem, down to Eber, to Peleg, and later on down to Terah, to Abraham, showing you that God is blessing his people and he's calling out some. And think of how actually exciting all this is. Here we have an account of how the world was filled and all people coming from these people 
divided up by nations and tribes and tongues and people all over the world. And in all of that, God has had a plan from the beginning. He's going to follow it through, and he's not going to forget his promises, and he's going to bless one line all the way down. And in Genesis 12, you're going to see one man called out, and he's going to say to him, I will make a nation out of you, and I'll bless you. And from you will come nations and offspring, and there'll be one seed that comes from you who's going to bless all people. And your Savior is going to come through these people. And God is filling the world with unity and diversity, but he's making division. He's calling out a special people. And all the sin of the world and all the cursing on the world, God has determined to bless some. Now here's the good news. Because there's kind of bad news in this, isn't there? And maybe you've put this together already, maybe you haven't. A lot of these people are cursed. We're talking about Egyptians, Babylonians, Assyrians, all the Canaanites. Tons of multitudes of people cursed because of something that happened long ago. What hope do they have? What hope do we have? I don't know about your lineage. I don't know about mine. I haven't gone to 23andMe. I can't trace it all the way back. I don't know ultimately. Where did the Norwegians come from? I'm not sure. But what do we do if we're part of the cursed line? Like, where's the hope for us? If it has been determined all the way back because of something one of Noah's sons did, now we have... Millions and millions and billions of people curse. Like, where's the good news? Where's the hope of that? Now, here's the good news. You're not stuck in your tree. There's going to be a story about a woman named Rahab. And who is she? She's a prostitute. But more importantly, she's a Canaanite. Born in sin, born cursed, going back generations. Cursed by birth. But she chooses to dwell in the tents of Shem. And she says, I'm going to align myself with those people, the people who are favored by God. And she is saved. And that is true for all people, no matter what you were born into, no matter what your family tree is, no matter what sins you inherit, you may think your family is cursed. You may look at your parents on this Mother's Day and say, I wish I had a different mother because mine cursed me. Then we look at the grace of God in the gospel where he takes cursed people and says, you can be part of the blessed people by grace, by faith. And the story of the rest of Scripture is God having a blessed people through whom salvation will come and the gospel will go out to the sons of Japheth and to the sons of Canaan to Egyptians, to Assyrians. Even before Jesus comes, Assyrians repent and believe. And God's grace infects the cursed lineage of humanity. Until, what do we see at the end? We're going to get there in a couple weeks. We're going to spend a couple weeks in Revelation 4 and 5. Around the throne of the Lamb, 
of people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. The reality is, all of us were born cursed, born in sin. And all of us can receive the grace of God and be blessed in Jesus Christ and live in him. And that's what this table of nations is setting up. It's the rest of the redemptive story of Scripture. We're all united as humans. United under Noah, united in our sin. But God has called out, he's divided up humanity, and some are going to come and be blessed. I'm going to leave you with just a quote from Paul from Ephesians 2. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Cursed at birth and far away, but brought near by grace. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your grace. And we go back to old stories and say, what does this have to do with us? And how do we make sense of this? This all seems so weird, generational curses. And where's the grace in that? And then we're reminded of your son, Jesus Christ, and reminded of the fact that from the beginning, you've been calling out and saving uh, sinful people to be your own, to be your people. And Lord, may we be those people, not because of anything we've done, but because of everything that Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. Whatever background we come from, we know we can have life in you, and we praise you for it. Amen.